welcome to the CSI Spring Series. My name is LB and we are excited to be with you all. Tonight we are so, so, so fortunate and excited to have Dr. Isabel Farrell, Dr. Mark Scholl, and Dr. Bettina Wilkinson with us to engage in a discussion about the presence of race, ethnicity, citizenship, and language within a counseling relationship. Dr. Farrell is an assistant professor in the counseling department. Her clinical expertise extends from her background as a bilingual counselor, working with uh, Latinx clients, undocumented clients, sexual assault and domestic violence survivors, um, and domestic um, violence survivors, sorry about that. Her research is focused on immigrant and refugee populations, Latin communities, and legislative professional advocacy. Dr. Scholl is an associate professor in the counseling department, and he is a member of the Forsyth County Reentry Council. Uh, his scholarship includes his recommendations for culturally responsive approaches to counseling and supervision, and he has provided career counseling to ex-offenders for the past seven years. And we have Dr. Wilkinson, who is an associate professor in the politics department and has research specialties in racial and ethnic politics, public opinion, and political behavior. She's also the director of the Race, Inequality, and Race Initiative on campus. As our worlds continue to become more diverse, the challenge will be finding new ways uh, to grow and learn. That includes learning about ourselves, the people we work with, and how those moments of continued learning come together. As we continue to reflect on events over the past year, and as we continue to learn throughout this Black History Month, we see how significant race and identity is to many people. Regardless of how you have processed the events over the past year, we want this conversation to be a space for our collective and continued learning. Our speakers tonight have backgrounds in acknowledging the importance and impact of the multiple identities we all hold. We hope that in sharing their experiences and perspectives, we can all feel a little bit more comfortable recognizing and valuing those various ways in which we and those around us identify. Thank you, LB, appreciate you. Um, and thank you for introducing our evening speakers. Uh, so welcome to those attending for the first time and welcome back to all those who are there with, who are here with us for our first session. Um, and my name is Bobby Lang and I'll be co-leading tonight's discussion. And before we begin, we begin, we do have a couple of housekeeping items. Um, so if you have not already, I kind of just mentioned this a couple minutes ago, um, please go into your Zoom preferences to check the box and hide non-video participants um, in the video settings. We sent an email, hopefully you all got that. Um, and just kind of want to make it so that it's the easiest for you to be able to process everything that's being said. Um, secondly, I want to note that identity is complex, nuanced, and multifaceted. And we only have just this one hour together. Uh, so while we want to get the most out of our time together, uh, we consider this just to be opening the door into these conversations um, rather than attempting to really get to the bottom of everything. Uh, we hope we can dive more specifically and deeply into these topics in the future. Uh, and future iterations of the series, maybe workshops and different other types of things in future springs. Um, but for the time being, this is um, kind of the state of being. Uh, so if you walk away feeling a sense of wanting more, please keep in mind that we're hoping to make that happen in the future. Uh, we also plan on sending out a survey, so keep an eye out for that. And we would love your feedback. Uh, thank you to those that were able to fill out that survey after our first session. We really appreciate that feedback. Um, and if you, oh, and also if you have any questions, uh, please feel free to put those in the chat. So if you put those in the chat, we'll monitor those. And at the end, we'll make sure that there's time to answer a couple of those questions if they haven't been answered 
um, during our session together. Um, that being said, I think that we can begin this discussion. Uh, so if we could just start off, if everybody could share briefly um, how race, ethnicity, language, and citizenship show up in your professional work. And we can kind of go in whatever order works best for you all. Well, I can start. Um, well, as uh, LB mentioned, I am I'm a bilingual counselor. I'm an immigrant as well. Um, and, you know, so I'm a Spanish speaking counselor. So I work with um, Latine uh, populations and I'll explain the differences between the Latine and the Latinx, which is a current conversation around language uh, that we're having in our community. Um, so all of our, all my clients uh, were, or like 80, 90% of my clients were Spanish speakers or were, um, children or, or uh, complete Spanish speakers. Also, um, a lot of my families that I've worked with were immigrants themselves or they were undocumented. So we have to work with that citizenship aspect as well. And I work with uh, you know mostly low income populations. So that was just another part of the identity as I was working with the children in a school setting uh, with their families as well. Um, I'm Bettina Wilkinson. Um, like Isabel, um, I was, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I came to the U.S. when I was six. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, a place with uh, really uh, high racial tensions, uh, history of that, and even current to this day. Um, I grew up in a suburb called Metairie, uh, David Duke country, some would people would say also right outside of New Orleans. Um, so in general, for me, my understanding of race and ethnicity uh, and my interest in it was from a young age. And um, my, so I'm a political scientist with a focus on American politics, um, and I would be myself a public opinion scholar. So I'm interested in how people develop attitudes toward issues regarding race. And so um, my first major book project was looking at uh, racial um, attitudes among whites, blacks, and Latinxes. And now my second book project is looking at the extent that professional athlete statements on issues regarding immigration, criminal justice reform, racism, police brutality, Black Lives Matter, have the ability to shape people's stances on and views on those topics. Uh, so that's kind of where I come in. And the, I'm the director of the Race and Equality and Policy Initiative, and we talked about that already. Thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm part Native American from the uh, Lumbee tribe um, coming from uh, Robinson County, North Carolina. And um, I've, I've taught at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Um, and I counsel ex-offenders, as uh, LB mentioned. And my comments primarily pertain to race and ethnicity in terms of my you know, firsthand experience with the clients I serve. Um, one way in which it shows up is there's a uh, there's a prevalent discrimination in, in sen sentencing and disparate severe sentencing um, with about 34% um, uh, of the correctional population um, being uh, being black uh, only with only 13.4% of the total population being black um, as just one salient example. Um, also, discrimination in hiring can be based on uh, 
race and ethnicity, and of course, language and citizenship as well. This is, um, this is very well documented. And um, as a result, when I'm teaching skills like interviewing skills or job search strategies, I also have to build in components that involve uh, emotional support and empathy uh, because uh, clients uh, can be quite emotional and they can need that support um, in order to uh, be able to make progress in their skill development. Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone. I appreciate the, the blending of personal identity with professional identity and how your, your backgrounds and experiences have kind of influenced some of the work that you've done. Um, and I'm excited because, you know, we really, as part of forming this group, we really wanted to have some different perspectives on, on these topics. And I feel like we really have some great people in the room to speak to some of these things. So I'm really excited to hear some of the answers uh, to some of the remaining questions as well. So thank you for kind of starting us off. Um, so kind of going in, in, in line with that, uh, there are many cultural and contextual nuances uh, with how these topics play out in our, in our daily interactions. And so Dr. Wilkinson, in your opinion, uh, what power does language hold when talking about race and ethnicity? Um, so as a social scientist, I guess I'll start just taking a more of a, a social science perspective to this question these topics. Um, so at first, it's important to recognize that, you know, that race is a social construct, um, but it was framed from the very beginning of time as a biological construct. Uh, we as humans created categories for individuals to develop a hierarchy where there were individuals who were deemed as intelligent, hardworking, civilized, and those who were not so much. Um, we didn't see this just with English colonies in Africa, but we also saw them in Latin America with the Spanish conquistadores and the Barakamen in Japan, among just a few examples. Along these lines, it's important to recognize that while we may not want to categorize individuals in distinct uh, racial categories, we need to recognize that individuals who differ um, by national origin, by skin tone and phenotype are not treated in the same way as others who um, are different, um, but they're not treated uh, similarly by our society, by our policies, by the uh, political and social institutions that we have in this country and in the world even. Thus, it makes sense that the census in the, here every 10 years requests information as to who is residing in the United States and where they live to gauge the resources that certain neighborhoods, cities require more than others. Also, it's important to recognize that the labels that we use to refer to races and ethnicities can signal our views toward races and ethnicities or groups, um, racial and ethnic groups. For instance, if we use the term illegal alien uh, versus undocumented immigrant, we portray our political views toward individuals who come to the United States without papers. So there's a lot to say about that, but I, I guess I'll just you know, frame it in that way at first. Yeah, it, there's a lot of, I don't know what the best word for it is, but there's a lot of nuance in some of the language that we do use, um, some of it more charged than others. Um, and so it's, it's important that we kind of at least recognize where our language kind of shifts with who we're talking to and you know, the people who we perceive um, as they look similar and different to us. 
Um, so along those lines, um, Dr. Farrell, as a professional counselor um, who's also bilingual, you know, how does how has language kind of made an impact in your counseling relationships and, and other work? Yeah, so I think we first need to take a, a step back and really understand, you know, language itself. So language is so rooted in culture um, and the way that we express ourselves. You know, I grew up in a very expressive language. We have specific words about when something's too sweet and we cannot eat more of, which I cannot find the English equivalent to. Um, and, and the way that, you know, we're expressing ourselves, um, it's going to be so important in the counseling relationship. So when we're talking about language, we need to understand that the inability to express ourselves in our preferred language can create obstacles in the counseling relationship. So I've had instances where clients could not really express the, you know, what they were really feeling because I was, you know, they, were, they couldn't really um, speak the language in this, you know, this made the same language that I had. On the other hand, clients that were able to speak the same language were able to express themselves fully and be understood in a way that no one else could. Um, this is why we, you know, in research after research, we know that having a counselor that speaks your same language is highly effective. Um, and, you know, and when the counselor cannot speak the same language, it just creates barriers in a way that, that really impacts the way that, like that genuine and, and, and connection that you can have with a client. Um, I've, had, I've heard this question a lot is, what about a translator? Can a translator really help with that connection uh, and that kind of therapeutic relationship? But the problem with that, with, with, you know, imagine yourself that you're trying to connect with someone and someone else is filtering through what you're trying to say. And that just, it's like a whole wall that comes in because you don't know exactly who to connect to. You connect to the translator, or are you connecting with the counselor? So that's just, that's, it's a little hard. And I've also had some issues with translators as well. Um, I've heard translators not translating things accurately that the counselor was saying. Um, I've heard them taking their own, you know, and, and I think we need to understand too that a lot of the times when we are using translators, not all the time we use them professional translators. Sometimes we have to use family members or community members. I, we used to work um, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a, a, a pretty substantial Hmong population and we needed to use, and we couldn't find a professional translator that could help us. So we were using uh, a church, a local church, in order to be our translators. But then at one point we we're doing an assessment and they stopped us and say, you can't ask this question. This is culturally inappropriate. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's a benefit because we really need to know that. But at the same time, I've heard translators sometimes take their own path or, 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 or filter things or go through their own advice giving instead of really translating what the counselor is saying. So one is the ability to express yourself in a way that is genuine and accurate. And another one is that if you cannot, because of obstacles, we are living in a very diverse society and there's thousands of languages in this country. So you may not be able to find a counselor that speaks your language, unfortunately. Um, so we need to prepare, if we're using a translator, we need to figure out, okay, you know, how do we still create, you know, this therapeutic relationship? You know, that, how do I demonstrate this empathy and unconditional positive regard if it's having to be filtered through someone else? Uh, so in my own 
because I was a bilingual counselor and most of my clients have been bilingual or, or, or Spanish speakers, really, um, it created a bond between us that, you know, and it's almost this side of relief that uh, like someone can understand what I'm trying to say. Now, I will preface with, um, I am I'm Venezuelan, so I have a little bit of my own dialect, right? Um, and I, I would work with you know, a diverse amount, like a diverse um, clientele from different parts of Latin America. So there are some things that we need, to, we need to understand, even if we speak the same language, things are expressed differently. Like, you know, you know what's, things that are said in the South are very different from what's said in the North. Similar to a lot of uh, you know, countries around the world, you know, in, in different parts. So I remember I really had to learn from them. So even when I speak in the same language, and this and this really translates to any like anyone, is that we're really trying to take this cultural humility and trying to understand: is there any kind of words that are going to be significant for you, um, or in my in the way that I'm communicating, even if we speak the same language, is not quite fitting. So I have a funny one for you guys. Um, so um, in Venezuela, we have this word um, that is the same word in Peru means, okay, you're gonna laugh, um, that means horny, but in Venezuela means you're livid. And so when you're trying to communicate something so clear that you think that you're making sense for another person who speaks the same language is not. So even when we speak the same language, we have to really understand the cultural background of that and how we're able to express themselves and what kind of barriers can it be. Um, and, and another one that I wanted to mention and I mentioned at the beginning was the difference of how we're identifying some populations and as uh, Dr. Wilkinson was, well, was saying, and there's a huge debate right now on the use of the term Latinx versus the use of uh, Latini. And, and I wanted to bring this to the table because it's, it's a constant discussion around language. You know, when you're saying Latinx in Spanish, you know, Latinx, you know, Latinx, you know, like, I think it creates this disconnect for a lot of the, you know, the Latinx, Latini population. And so research has shown only 3% of, of this population actually uses the term Latinx. So really, you know, and how we are assigning and where this, you know, the reason why we're using Latinx is to be gender inclusive, um, but, are we potentially then also creating additional barriers for our own population to be able to do it? You know, how do they express in themselves? You know, I'm, I'm Latin, like Latinx, you know, like, so, and also thinking about language too, you know, in, in a lot of countries saying something's equis means something is nothing. Um, so that is another point. It's like, okay, are we saying we are nothing? It's, it's, it's kind of culturally, you know, sensitive. So there's a new movement on using Latinx versus Latinx. Um, it's it, there, it, you know, I, I see both of them at the same time and arguments for both. So, you know, even the way that we are identifying our population, we need to be careful on how language plays uh, and how that could be used or not used in the population that speaks the native language. Wow, I, I love that um, because I honestly hadn't heard that that discussion or debate going on and you know, that's really important to know that expression, especially in certain cultures, is very important. And then how you express that through the words that you use is so key. Um, and then even with translators, um, not everything is going to translate the way you need it to. Um, so that, wow, that's, 
honestly amazing. Um, <laughs> but to keep us a, a bit focused, um, I kind of want to, you kind of already touched a little bit on to uh, the next question that I have is, you know, how important is it that race and ethnicity are talked about um, inside of a counseling relationship, outside of a counseling relationship? So with like your friends, your peers, your colleagues, um, and I'll just open this up for everyone on the panel. Like, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? We just jump in or uh, raise our hands <laughs> to whatever you would like. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say something quick. I mean, for me, you know, I, uh, I, my background is not in counseling, but I think it's important in general for the counselor to recognize, as was alluded to by Dr. Farrell, you know, the power structure that can exist between the client and the counselor, thus, you know, ensuring that a connection exists, or at least doing one's best to create an environment where a connection can exist, a sense of trust can exist between the counselor and the clients really is essential. And then also I would add, you know, for the counselor to do his or her, their homework on, you know, the, um, the client, you know, in the specific circumstances, experiences, day-to-day, uh, -day, um, you know, that, that they could have that could impact their ability to, you know, share their, uh, share their story, share their experiences and feel comfortable around them. Yeah, I would I would echo uh, Dr. Wilkinson's comments and and you know say that there's definitely a, a power differential and the role of the counselor in in terms of um, sort of modeling um, self disclosure in terms of talking about uh, their own um, identity and including marginalized identities and uh, uh, privilege. And, and acknowledging uh, those just in the in the therapeutic relationship, and uh, normalizing those open discussions and what uh, we've talked about as uh, as examples of broaching. Yeah, and I echo um, both, and and I will also add that we can't ignore race and ethnicity outside or inside of counseling. You know, you really, you know, and race and ethnicity follows us in the way that we are perceived in our world, the way that we're treated in our world, the way that, so, and, and, and because of that, it has shaped our life experiences and the way that we we see ourselves in our, in our society and the ways that others see us. So that we bring this into a counseling session as a client, as a counselor, and we bring this outside of it too. So we can't ignore it. Um, we, we need to address it, we need to put it forward, and we need to honor that because that's, that's how conversations started and that's how change starts too, is when we start bringing those conversations to the table. Yeah, it's such a core part of identity and I think you all made a great point of like, you can't really have connection without understanding that component of identity. Like if you can't meet somebody where they are culturally, then how can you even create that connection? And, and broaching is um, you know, something we talked about a little bit last in our last time together. And I think that really that is an avenue in the counseling relationship, but trying to also think about how is that possible maybe outside of a counseling relationship? How can we broach in an effective, like thoughtful way in 
you know, conversations with friends or, or conversations in, in our society. Um, so I, yeah, I appreciate you all bringing that up. Um, definitely. Uh, so Dr. Scholl, uh, you have worked with individuals who are ex-offenders and provided career counseling for them after they re-entered society. How did you find race, ethnicity, or citizenship to be a component of the service you provided in those relationships? Well, um, an interesting point in the literature is, um, you know, that employers uh, have been shown to have uh, biases when working with individuals from, uh, you know, marginalized populations, and they trend towards um, underestimating uh, two primary characteristics on the part of applicants, and those are uh, warmth and competence. And warmth has to do with uh, several sub-factors, including trustworthiness, uh, kindness, and friendliness. And uh, competence uh, includes uh, being knowledgeable, being uh, skilled, being efficient. And so when you're, when you're working with clients, any clients, but uh, particularly clients with marginalized identity, um, it's important to emphasize that you have to be very, very intentional in terms of the way that you present yourself to a potential employer, uh, the way you, the way you uh, communicate non-verbally and the content of what you say. And so a question uh, that seems as, uh, it seems almost like a throwaway question in a job interview, tell me about yourself. You have to be very, very intentional in answering that question and make sure that your response is um, including examples of ways in which you're both uh, warm and competent and be, and be very, very um, deliberate in terms of preparing for that question because that's one of the most common questions you get in an employment interview. And it's very easy to think, oh, I'll just talk about my hobbies. I'll talk about the town that I'm from and it'll just be fine. And you go, no, 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 we've really got to plan this. And we've got to make it seem like you're just saying this off the cuff. Like it's just coming to mind as you're saying it. And that makes you come across as warm. But, but you know, but then you've got to talk about ways that you displayed your, your strengths so that you come across as, uh, as competent. And, and what that does is it, it gives uh, applicants from diverse populations uh, a stronger sense of personal agency in the process. So it's, it's really no different than you work with all clients, but it's just to underscore this intentionality with regards to uh, salient areas of implicit bias that we know about. Thank you so much, Dr. Scholl. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I, I never really considered the, the value of that question um, and, and how it can bring out so much information and how some of the biases that we hold can, can really influence how we respond to how somebody explains their self, themselves and how culture plays into those responses. Uh, so thank you, I really appreciate that. Um, and so this, this question is a really broad one. Um, so I'll be really interested to hear, hear each of your responses and it could be very similar, maybe incredibly different. Um, but what do you consider to be the top three obstacles to well-being uh, related to race, ethnicity, language, and citizenship? Uh, like I said, very broad, but I feel like knowing the problems that exist is helpful in trying to develop solutions. And your thoughtfulness is appreciated here. I, I recognize it's a big question. 
Yeah, I know. I, yeah, it's, it's a big question. And really, that's um, a, a lot has to do with like the, like the macro systems, right? What's going on in our, in our, in our country, in our communities. Um, and so, you know, what can we do to fix it? It's, it's, a, it's a more of a bigger conversation. Um, but a lot of the obstacles that I've seen uh, a lot of my clients uh, face, um, one is a sense of safety. Um, and, and, and when you are a person, especially uh, in an undocumented um, population, uh, there's that sense of safety that you, you, that you don't have. Right, so you you go to work knowing that you won't never that you may not come home. Uh, children know this too. Um, you know, say maybe my mom or my dad are going to go to work and they're not going to come back. Um, it's really hard to establish roots. It's really hard to really get connected, uh, you know, or, or safe in your community without really worrying about what's going next. Um, and and a lot of my clients, both undocumented and just immigrant clients, also do not have a lot of ac understanding of access to to systems. Uh, because they they didn't quite know. Um, so I also you know more obstacles for well-being if they're not receiving the correct you know services, you know both you know mental health or you know health services, you know food, like anything, any kind of services that we've gotten accustomed to really understand and know. Um, a lot of my clients did not quite understand how to navigate those systems. Um, so that just affects their well-being and their growth quite a bit. Um, and even how to advocate for themselves, how to advocate for their children in school systems. Um, you know, and, and culturally, there's also there's this kind of also hierarchy of like, I, I'm not supposed to question uh, authority and I'm not supposed to question my teachers. And, and so I've seen a lot of my students um, not thrive in schools because the parents didn't feel um, empowered to talk or, or advocate or, or, or even protest about what's going on in their children's school. So, you know, so I'm not sure if I'm answering the question right, um, so tell me if I'm not, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, how do we fix that? You know, why, why our clients are not completely well holistically is just because, you know, the, the oppressive systems that we have that really just contributes to, um, not thriving in the communities that they're supposed to be thriving. Definitely addressing the question for sure. Thank you, Dr. Farrell. Yeah. yeah and I, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I, was, I would just add along the same lines. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Farrell mentioned um, services. Um, there are uh, mental health disparities in terms of access to mental health services, and that's that's compounded by mistrust. You know, because of the the, the cultural differences between the mental health practitioners and the clients. Um, so there's mistrust and, and there's, uh, you know, there's a history of misdiagnosis, like under diagnosis of affective disorders uh, for people of color. Um, and there's, uh, you know, there's a disparity in terms of the quality of services that, that are available uh, to people from diverse uh, populations. So for that reason, um, you know, when you talk about race, ethnicity, language, and citizenship, um, you can see a higher prevalence of uh, mental health disorders among people from diverse populations. Yeah, so I, I would echo, you know, just the importance of um, the disparities that exist, uh, you know, when it comes to resources that are provided to 
groups and, uh, and also just the awareness of um, the experiences that individuals have in the past history that uh, people of that uh, similar race, ethnicity, or uh, national origin can have that affects then how they view the world, their affects their well-being, their practices, their behaviors, and so on and so forth. One thing that I actually uh, thought of, not so much about the well-being, um, well, for the actual um, client, but I was thinking more along the lines of, okay, obstacles related to addressing maybe issues of race, ethnicity, language, and citizenship. And I was thinking, you know, at first, as we alluded to, recognizing the, you know, rigid racial hierarchy that exists in this country and in general, the policies and uh, institutions that promote it. Um, second, I would say being self-aware and, and really understanding that how one looks, how one acts has an effect on how others respond to them. Um, and then particularly for those who are white and uh, let's say counselors who are white, recognizing that they have white privilege and how that affects them on a daily basis. And that may not affect uh, you know, other people, um, individuals from, from underprivileged backgrounds. Um, and then lastly, and we've mentioned this before, you know, recognizing the power of language and how it can uplift individuals, but also tear them apart. Um, even if the individual using certain language may not be aware of it um, and how it can. The, use, the words that we use to communicate with individuals, label individuals, interact with them uh, affects, you know, sheds light on who we are, how we view others, and how others view themselves. Um, so. Yeah, I, I greatly appreciate all of those responses. Um, I, I think well-being definitely has a component of comfortability, a level of, you know, casual nature to where you can feel at home with, with yourself and who you are and who you can be with others. Um, and so even being able to be cognizant of the fact that what you say, how you say it, what you look like to yourself and to others is greatly going to impact that, that level of well-being. Um, and so kind of going off of that, in your opinions, how might counselors or other helping professions in a way be uniquely prepared to address bridging those those gaps um, in attaining well-being. Well, I'll kind of build upon uh, my answer regarding mental health disparities, and it, it's the idea that as counseling professionals. Um, we have uh, plural roles, you know, so we're talk therapists, but we're also researchers and we're, we're leaders in our profession and we're uh, agents of community engagement. And with regard to that, uh, that role, community engagement, um, one way we can make a difference and, and something that I've done is gone into another field and that is uh, the corrections field. And I've, I've talked to, uh, to uh, chiefs in the Department of Public Safety and probation officers and advocated for, um, you know, widening frames of reference, not to just focus on uh, interventions that, that deal with um, antisocial tendencies, but to talk about wellness factors 
you know, like the creative self and the social self and the coping self. And uh, how can we develop some programming that sort of um, it addresses and fills that need for um, uh, greater mental health equity for individuals who are um, the clients of corrections officers who it's not on their radar because the manuals that they use don't emphasize these, these wellness factors. Yeah, to build on, on, on Dr. Schultz's um, argument too is, you know, we really, you, you know, we, we can't close gaps that we're not aware of. Um, and, and sometimes I, there is this misconception that, you know, especially our roles as counselors, um, we just stay in the office and that's what we do, right? And so we separate ourselves from our communities and we don't really understand what's going on in our communities sometimes. So how do we address the gaps is by really knowing what's going on first. Um, embed yourself in that community. Um, I, you know, and, and I work with, you know, with a population that was um, concerned about their safety. So they really need to build connection with me in order to trust me. So I will be walking in their neighborhoods and, you know, going to their houses, not saying that everyone should do this, but a lot of the times we is, is building connection with the community, understanding what's around them, um, connecting with stakeholders, uh, you know, don't thinking that you're the savior for everything because you're not right. So you're there to learn from them. So that's why I tell my clients all the time. I I'm, I'm not the expert on your life here. I want to learn from you. And so how do we know the disparities is by really connecting and understanding and going to our communities and learning about our communities. And, um, and so that kind of cultural humility too, you know, we're not, we're not the experts here. We may be the experts in counseling or whatever field you are, but, but I'm not the expert on what, on the issues they are, are, are facing. Um, and from there is when we can do advocacy, which I know that's one of the next questions. So I'm not going to go too much into it. Um, but yeah, it's just stepping out of our offices and really understanding what's going on with our clients and in their communities. And I don't have much to add to what was already said. Uh, I second both major comments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think, Dr. Shaw, I hear some of like the, the strengths approach of counseling being, you know, informing the way that we have our corrections, um, you know, officers being trained and, and kind of operating and like more of a positive, you know, well-being model instead of like kind of how it's currently standing. Mm -hmm. And then um, also, Dr. Farrell, I think it makes tons of sense, like meeting, meeting our people where they are and in their communities and really spending some time getting to understand that culture um, at the ground level, it does feel like counselors are uniquely able to do that in some ways, like because it's kind of the nature of building connection is what counseling is in so many ways. And so managing those relationships and really meeting them where they are, I love that. Um, so as you as you noted, Dr. Farrell, we are gonna kind of talk a little bit about advocacy next. And I feel like that you, you kind of provided some of the how, and so maybe some of the what, um, like what direction from an advocacy perspective. So based on your experience and research for each of you, what advocacy efforts would be the most meaningful in creating a positive change for the communities that you serve? I'm happy to go. I'm happy to go first. Um, I've, um, I've been a part of um, efforts in Winston-Salem 
to to ban the box uh, on the applications that we we all fill out. And there's a little box where if you check it, it indicates that you've uh, been convicted. You have a criminal conviction, not an arrest, but a conviction. And so I was I was part of an effort to uh, to remove that box from application forms. But unfortunately, there's a body of research that shows that really isn't helpful because of implicit bias. If someone is a is a young uh, male of color without a college degree, implicit bias is so strong that um, banning the box really doesn't make a difference. So what research really shows is that there's a, an innovative uh, policy known as employability certificates. And these are court issued by judges who review the uh, ex-offenders record of activity since their conviction. And so the, the judge can issue this, uh, this certificate uh, that the person can present to an employer. And there's some research in the state of Virginia by a, uh, a policy expert uh, at the University of Virginia, um, Jennifer Doliak, uh, that shows that these, these employability certificates actually increase the employment rate of, uh, of, of people of color who have a uh, criminal conviction record. So that's something I have the rapport with the members of the city council from the ban the box campaign to follow up with them and explore the possibility of adopting these employability certificates as maybe a, a, a more effective policy approach. Now, you probably heard a lot of passion from Dr. Schall's voice, right? Like, so and from this population. And that's for me what advocacy really is. It's something really personal. Um, and so how you how are you effective is by really connecting with what it's important to you uh, professionally and personally, uh, what kind of populations you're serving. Um, of course, I'm extremely biased on the legislative advocacy side because that's really where um, we do the most change is by you know, dismantling the systems of oppression and racism that we have in our country. Um, and, and by increasing access to mental health. Um, there's a lot of a movement now on expanding um, licensure across states, making sure that counselors are able to build certain um, you know, federal um, insurances, you know, et cetera. Um, and, but there's also a lot of legislation that addresses specific populations. Um, so as counselors, we can be in tune with that and, and seeing how can we really serve our community by advocating at a legislative level. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go to the Capitol and knock on your, um, your, your senator's door and say, but you can do, and, and you can even use social media to your advantage because right now social media is absolutely everything. Uh, so you can you know, tag your, your senator um, and say, hey, you know, there's a bill going on. You can do Google alerts to know what's going on in your state. Um, so any of this in that kind of macro level advocacy is going to be really important because that's really where the change happens at, at, at the like, systemic level. But also there's a lot of micro advocacy that I have done as a clinician. Um, as I said um, previously, I've, I did a lot with the client. Um, I used to, and because I'm bilingual, of course, I had to extend my boundaries a little more. Um, so. I used to go to parent-teacher conferences to make sure that my client is being, because I work with children. Um, 
that my client was being represented well. Um, I used to go to IEP meetings to make sure that there wasn't anything um, that uh, did not quite match to that, you know, to what the client really needed. I used to go and when I worked with uh, domestic violence survivors, I used to go to court with them um, to make sure they were supported and they were represented. So there's a lot of that stuff too. And, and even to the point as if, if a client came without a code, I am not gonna let them go home without any kind of resources. I will try to figure out how to get them resources too. So the way that we do advocacy can be from the micro, really trying to get the client supported to the macro level of what's going on in our, in our, in our legislation uh, to increase access uh, and, and well-being in the populations that we are passionate about or the populations that really need our support. And um, I would add, you know, developing a relationship with the community that you study. For me, a lot of the um, re uh, research on the Latinx population that I study is uh, close by in the uh, is in the old town area here. And so, you know, to develop a relationship with them, to tell their story through your research, to engage them, even in the research process, recognizing full well the um, hierarchy that exists between, you know, the researcher and the people you're studying. So engaging them in a conversation on, you know, ha having them look at your, for instance, interview or survey questions, getting feedback on the questions, sharing the results with them, providing financial support to the nonprofit that or that um, that serves them, providing them support for their, their participation in your study. Um, and then lastly, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is just writing an op-ed in the local newspaper to raise awareness of your study and, and to tell their story and their, their experiences. I think that that can be quite powerful. Yeah, and, and I think the, the key word in all of this is passion. Find the passion that, that you know, rests with you in, in the communities that you want to ha have better represented. Um, and, you know, that could, you know, be tagging your, your senators and representatives on social media because they have no choice but to check that, um, you know, writing, writing newspapers, going to uh, court and, you know, finding, finding different ways to, to really get not only yourself, but your, your clients out there, your, the people you are trying to represent in front of the 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 right people and you know that so that kind of leads me to my one of my final questions is you know you're all faculty at a higher ed university um in the area and so in what ways do you all exemplify or try to create a space that kind of acknowledges and you know invites conversations surrounding you know citizenship language ethnicity um or how would you like to in increase that those opportunities in class well i think that one of the things that i do a lot and it's very genuine for me is just really you know talking about my life experiences, talking about, you know, cases that I've, that I've had, you know, the issues that I've faced in my profession around, you know, race, ethnicity, citizenship, and language. Um, so for me, having those real life scenarios and, and, and struggles that I face as a clinician, it's important to me to include. Um, and also making sure that, you know, 
you know, if I do a case study, you know, of, of diverse populations are being represented. Um, if I'm doing any kind of videos or anything, I'm really just very intentional about not only including one particular race and ethnicity, you know, sexual orientation or anything. I'm really trying to be very intentional about what I include and how I am uh, talking about a diverse population. I'll add um, with the, I, I teach classes, um, most recently I've been teaching a lot of research methods, so I get a wide array of students, but um, my specialty is in racial and ethnic politics, and I have in the past um, taught several classes on racial and ethnic politics, and so the ability to be able to, you know, uh, talk about uh, white privilege, racism, the racial hierarchy in this country in the classes, um, and for me, what's also been nice is in the last few years, given the uh, student body that is changing a good bit at Wake Forest. You know, for many years, I, I when I first started here 11 years ago, I had to play devil's advocate all the time because there's just one overarching perspective that was presented in the classroom. And now I have the opportunity to have students from all kinds of different backgrounds with all kinds of different experiences share with the rest of the class, their perspectives, their experiences. And that has been so wonderful because I think no textbook, you know, or no opportunity for me to play devil's advocate is going to bring about some change or convince certain individuals. But they're my, you know, students own classmates can be so powerful in, you know, having the opportunity to, you know, provide that different perspective, different opinion um, that is so important. So, so I view it like that. And then also, you know, with the race and equality and policy initiative that uh, I just started um, along with, uh, I see Alessandra Von Berg in the, uh, in the audience, um, you know, the, the idea of just uh, to think about the um, policy issues that are, um, that really mingle with uh, racial inequality issues. And so really, you know, raising awareness of that through the website. So we've created a virtual libraries and including um, in information on the website for there for everybody to see. And then having a speaker series um, this semester, for instance, all focused on education and equality to raise awareness of issues from a variety of different levels of education, uh, I think is really important. Um, sometimes, uh diverse students in a class can can feel like there's a pressure on them to represent their group and to be the one to educate the people who know less about oppression and prejudice and discrimination and so i i like to have a, a ground rule that it's perfectly okay if you don't want to participate no one has to feel pressured to represent uh you know their their group that they uh, that they come from, uh, but but at the same time, all voices are welcome, and we really welcome people's authentic uh, voices and want people to be heard and contribute. Um, and also, another ground rule is um, it's unacceptable to make uh, personal attacks on people. It's okay to respectfully disagree, but not to attack somebody because of who they are or their identity or their values. Um, but one thing to kind of validate feeling uncomfortable, there's um, three statements that come from uh, the psychologist Monica Williams. And I, I use these in my classes to make people to, to normalize feeling uncomfortable. And they're all very positive. And the first one is, 
counseling students are caring, empathic people, so they don't want to offend people. So they're very, very careful and hesitant to, to speak out. And the second one is a, a lot of folks have been exposed to racism personally. And so it's very, very difficult to talk about. It's uncomfortable. And uh, the third one is everybody's really invested in wanting to be culturally competent and, and sensitive and, and skilled, you know, optimally skilled. So people are hesitant because they don't want to um, commit an error or offend, again, offend anyone. And if you, if you sort of put that out there, it tends to make people suddenly feel, oh, this is normal what I'm feeling. And it reduces the tension and people feel more comfortable. Thank you for those those wonderful insights, um, and you know, being vulnerable to kind of share some of your experiences because um, I think that's a good way for us to kind of begin to break down those barriers that we have to these difficult conversations. Um, and so, at this time, I'm going to open this up to the participants. If you do have a question for uh, our panelists feel free to throw your question into the chat. Um, and as Bobby mentioned earlier, we'll both monitor that um, and any of our panelists will be able to answer that. Y'all were so thorough, you know, that, you know, just completely, we did get to the bottom of everything. You know, it was at the outset we didn't know, but we did. Um, so if there aren't any questions, um, we were interested in uh, just any reflections that you all have from this process as, as panelists and as speakers. Like if there's any reflections of, you know, coming from different disciplines and, and maybe from different experiences, what it would be like to discuss some of these topics um, in this forum. Well, I'll share actually um, an experience that I've had recently. So, uh, and this was mentioned by Dr. Farrell in the very beginning. Um, so, you know, some disciplines, some individuals totally embrace the term Latinx and others do not. And so in political science, I'll say we're pretty behind. And <laughs> so it is seen as like a revolutionary thing to use the term Latinx. And I was having a conversation on social media with some friends about it. And I was like, well, no, it, you know, but wouldn't it be Latino? You know, we were just talking about it and uh, I was explaining why certain perspectives, you know, some individuals would have that perspective and this and that. And, um, and, and they were very adamant and they're like, no, if you use the term Latino, you will, you know, not recognize the, uh, you know, the um, bi, um, gen, you know, bisexual individuals and you will be a complete offense to me. And it was so interesting to me because I, I, I never, you know, thinking about language and political science, we, we think about language, but not always in the, uh, the effect that it could have on individuals, you know, um, health, mental health or, you know, perceptions. And I was like, holy cow, I've never intended to hurt you. And so it was at that moment where I was like, I'm going to use Latinx because by using Latino, I, I didn't think I was hurting you, but apparently I am. So, okay, let me go with Latinx. You know, so, but, but it's interesting because then I can share that term Latinx with my parents or, you know, with community members here in the old town area. And they're like, Latinx, what would, you know, like we don't use that term. And so anyway, so it's just interesting to me, the importance of language and context and the, and uh, thinking about power structures and the, how that could all affect, uh, you know, how we view things and how we behave. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think I have like, 
before I, you know, I, you know, I started my doctoral program, I never used Linux. Um, I think it's in, in our communities is not used very often. And it's just because of the way, like in the way that you can say it in Spanish is just not, does not flow. And it's, it, it's just weird. Um, and we are also in a very gender language, which I think it's, it's so interesting how much like a lot of languages, especially romantic languages are gendered and, and, and thinking about, you know, the whole gender binary is embedded in our language and how do we break away from that? Uh, and I think we're growing um, as a community trying to figure out how do we, how are we inclusive and, and in our own language? I think, uh, I think something I've been reflecting on is, and it's been very challenging, is just, um, is, is why am I uh, drawn to, to work with ex-offenders? And um, I think I think part of it is, um, you know, growing up in uh, Greensboro uh, during the during the 60s as a child and and some of the historical events that were happening around me during my formative years. Um, But also, I think there's something about ex-offenders that they have compounded implicit bias because they're disproportionately sentenced. And then there's an additional stigma associated with having. Uh, a criminal record, and I think it's just it's just compounded, and and that's why I feel um, so drawn to help um, ex-offenders, and also they're they're very very responsive to assistance. You know, it, it, it seems like they're kind of hungry for somebody who really wants to reach out to them and help them, and it's very gratifying to get that kind of response in turn. Yeah, and. Uh- I appreciate that, Dr. Scholl, and I think we're running up at uh, seven o'clock. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for for all of your contributions uh, today. I think that it was all really powerful. Um, and considering how we can address some of these issues, and really just spend some time, like considering how we can passionately engage with many of these issues. How can we best meet cultural identities where they are, both in the counseling room, but also on the outside and on the outskirts? How can we do it from an advocacy perspective? and really just address everything that's going on in our world and using this critical moment in time to really like give it our best shot. You know, how can we really give all of our energy, all of our passion to making the world a better place from a perspective of race, ethnicity, citizenship, and language. Um, We look forward to seeing folks uh, in the future sessions. Thank you for coming this evening. And I appreciate some of these comments that are coming in. Really appreciate you all. And again, panelists, thank you so much for spending the time with us, uh, for all the vulnerability and just sharing your expertise and um, insights. We really appreciate it.